Well, guys, we began our days several days ago already, almost a week ago now. Can you believe it? Almost a week ago, we began our days talking about becoming these people, this community, this church that was saturated with God. And essentially what we're talking about is taking all of our focus off of the here and now and putting our focus on eternal things. Becoming more eternistic rather than earthistic. Okay, We by nature are so earthistic. Some of you this morning have already been consumed with the here and now. It's very easy for me to get consumed with the here and now. I, I come here in the morning and things aren't laid out just like I want them in my little claustrophobic world. And I have to rearrange things and try to make things happen. And, and we open a cabinet in the trailer and the cereal bowl falls out and lands on the head. I mean the cereal box lands on the head of one of my children. And Cheerios go everywhere and the dogs are yapping. And we get, it's so easy to focus on the here and now. Some time ago, 2006, we began to build our dream home. And we spent a lot of time building our dream home. Uh, I tried to run a practice at the time and then build this house on the side. Well, I wasn't building it, but I'm overlooking it, making sure everything's working correctly. And, and I don't know, if, has anybody here built a house before? How many of you would do it again? Yeah, a couple. A couple that... Haven't woken up quite yet this morning. So there's this thing about building a house. I would, I would leave work every day at lunch, and I would go home to see how much more they had gotten done from the previous day. And I'm thinking, you've had a whole day. There's going to be so much done. And I think one board gets put up in, the, in that time, right? And, and you know, so, so I'm there every day, and all of these people are there, and they're working, they're diligent. And it's like this little ant bed. Well, just these people just doing all of these things, putting up these boards. And, and it, you know, whenever I was building this house, I don't know about you guys, but there was always something I didn't quite like that I had originally decided I wanted to do. And so I would come to the house, and I would decide that I want to make changes. Right? Anybody do that? So I'm looking at the way the kitchen is laid out, and I'm like, you know what? These cabinets would look better if you, if you kind of brought them down a little bit and you put some track lighting across the top. You know, create, you need some ambiance when you're cooking, you know? All these ideas. And, and there was thing about this. There were people everywhere. There's landscapers, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, building inspectors, just everybody everywhere. And there's this common theme among everybody. They all have this little tube that they're carrying around. Now, let me ask you, what's inside that tube? The blueprints. Exactly right. So I would go to them and I'd say, you know, guys, I really would like to change. I'd like to move the island and I'd like to move this wall and move it over here. And every time they would say, well, Shane, let's go back to these blueprints. And let's talk about what you're wanting to do. See, this wall that you're asking me to move here is a weight-bearing wall, and we can't move that wall, so we're going to have to do this. We're going to put a truss up. All of this that they would have to change because I wanted to make a change. And the thing is, is they always went back to the blueprints. Now, here's my question for you. Are we building our home with blueprints? You see, there's another structure in the Bible that was built with a great amount of detail. 
Now, by the way, I didn't tell you this, but in front of you, you're going to have a menu. That menu is not a menu to order food, okay? Uh, It's a buffet. That's all we have. But if you'd like to take some notes, you can take notes inside of that menu if you didn't bring notes, uh, a notepad or something. Now, again, that structure that was built with great detail was known as the tabernacle of Moses. And what God did, according to Exodus chapter 39, is he set forth great detail to build this tabernacle. And the Bible tells us that Moses followed every single detail to the T that God gave him. And it wasn't until the job was done, according to uh, Genesis 49, uh, chapter 40, verse 16, it says, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So it wasn't until the job was done exactly as God had commanded Moses that the Spirit of God or the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Key truth. It wasn't until it was done exactly like God told Moses to do that God's glory filled the tabernacle. Now, here's the question. If we're building our homes contrary to God's pattern, to God's detailed instruction to us, do we expect for God's glory to fill our home? You see, guys, you don't build or you don't renovate a structure without blueprints, right? I mean, if you tried to, here's the question, how would it turn out? Well, you don't know. You don't have any blueprints. You've got to have the blueprints for it to turn out well. What's happening today is there's too many couples that have not compared their blueprints for marriage and for the home. Like those construction workers, every husband and every wife has a set of very detailed blueprints. But there's too many relationships where the blueprints that he has and the blueprints that she has don't match up. Their expectations and their purposes seem to just differ between the two of them. Now, if you think that this might be true in your marriage or you think that this might be true in your home, how do you get on the same page in your relationship to make sure that your blueprints actually match up with one another? Well, the only answer that I know to to tell you is to put you in touch of the one and only architect. The one that has the designs for you. The one who has recorded his blueprints for you in this book called His Story. See, so many times, guys, we make this book our story. And it's not. It's his story that he's allowed you and me to be a part of. As you journey through life together, you want to grow in your love for one another. You want your family to be this beautiful thing. You want to experience life fully. And I believe that many of us truly want to be one. But, we, but what seems so effortly back when we were engaged or when we were dating each other now seems to be this elusive dream. And that's why we need to make sure that we understand God's blueprints or God's purposes for marriage, for home, for family, for community. You see, guys, we live in this community, where there's, we're in, this, in this society where there's so, so much outside pressure to do and to go, and to be busy. Remember I told you that's exactly what Satan wants to do with us. He wants to make us so very busy. Would anybody say they're busy? The rest of you are lying. Yeah, you're busy. I don't care what stage of life that you're in, you're busy. 
We become fragmented. We become disconnected. And frankly, we become so spread thin that what our families actually get at the end of the day is the leftovers. And the scary thing, guys, is we think, well, I don't have any choice. That's, that's the way life is, so I'm going to have to give everybody else the leftovers. I can't do anything else. Again, that's exactly where Satan wants us. He wants us to buy into that lie that there's no other way. Our priorities just get out of line. So using this word picture of building a home, what's happening is our foundations are beginning to crumble. And if our foundations are crumbling, then our families will begin to crumble, and ultimately our families and our homes will fail. Many of you, unfortunately, have already begun to experience that personally. And so we want to ask the question, what do we do? I love Psalm 11, verse 3. It says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? God realizes that this is an issue, so he asks the question in his word. If the foundations are being destroyed, what in the world can we do? And the good news is he gives us the answer Um, Some verses later in Psalm 127, verse 1, he says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Guys, let us not miss this. Many of us very well may be building our homes in vain. Because, listen to me, Christ is no longer Lord of our homes. So in this first session, let's work on building a solid foundation for our homes, if you will. And let's look at more detail in the idea of knowing God's purpose for your home. Guys, this is the foundation of everything that we've been teaching in these days on the area of family. We've got to know God's purpose for our home. Here's purpose number one, I believe, and that's to mirror God's image. Whether it be in our individual lives, whether it be in our marriages, whether it be in our homes, God desires for us to mirror His image. Look at this verse here with me. Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning, beginning of verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image. I love the conversation God's having with the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are coming together. And He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God's first purpose for creating man and woman, God's first purpose for creating you this and the, the unit that you make up called family was for us to mirror his image. On planet Earth. Now, let's center our attention on the word reflect or mirror his image. The, re- the Hebrew word for mirror means to reflect God, it means to magnify, it means to exalt, it means to glorify him. And your marriage and your home should reflect God's image to a world that desperately needs to see who he is. 
So the question that we've got to ask ourselves this morning is, does my family, does your family, does our household reflect God's image? Everything that we do must be done with God's glory in mind. That means that our focus should be gospel-centered. The movies that we watch, the conversations that we have, the activities that we, we participate in, the friends that we keep, every bit of that should mirror the image of God. Think about, think about your neighbors for a minute. So many times in our society, we work these nine-to-five jobs, and then we come home. Think about this. We get up in the morning. we got to be at work at 9, to five, nine o'clock. So we get up at 7 o'clock, we get ready, we have a bit of breakfast, we get in the car at about 8.15, 8.30, we open the garage, we leave, we go to our job, we get there at 9 o'clock. Now, we, Brother John, we can get to work at 9, but don't make us come to church on time. So we get to work. Did he say that? He did. So we get to work at 9 o'clock, and we work from 9 to 5. And then we clock out, we leave our cubicle, we get in our car, we pull into our neighborhood, we open the garage, we go inside. We close the garage door behind us not to come out again until 8.15 or 8.30 the next morning. Now, have you ever thought about why you live in that community? Well, yes, Shane, I live in that community because I thought it was a pretty cool house, and I liked it, and so I moved in it because it was something that I wanted. (laughs) Though, Though our desires and our motives may have been wrong, that's not why you're there. You're there because God wanted you as a believer to impact that community. And what happens, guys, is many of us living the, live, live in these communities and we don't even know our neighbors except for maybe their names. And sometimes we don't even know their names. They've been living four doors down for 15 years and I don't even know their name. And the scary thing, guys, is we bought into the idea that that's Okay. And it would be okay if everything was about me. If all of those neighbors revolved around my claustrophobic little world, population one, then that would be okay. But that's not okay. Because we're created in the image of God. People who who wouldn't otherwise know God should get a glimpse of God through us. Just like the moon was created to reflect the image of the sun, and that's all it does. That's how it glorifies God. God created us to reflect the image of His Son. And when we're not properly doing that, then we're not doing, don't miss this, we're not doing what we were created to do. Many of us are searching in these days, Brother John, for this thing called fulfillment. We want to know that our lives are being fulfilled. We want to know that we're making a difference. That I'm looking for that elusive thing that just makes me feel good. What if that elusive thing is for you to do what you were created to do? And that's glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To reflect Him. You want to know fulfillment? You want to be that person that makes you so mad because they're happy all the time? You know who they are. You're thinking, I just wish they'd have a bad day. I want to be the one to give them one. 
They're always happy and always smiling. I can't stand them. If you want to be that person, then start doing what God created you to do. And you'll begin to understand the fullness of joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. (laughs) Guys, here's here's the bottom line. God's calling us in these days not to live in our claustrophobic little world Population one. So how do we actively do this? First of all, I think that we should be actively going out and pursuing our neighbors. Now let me tell you how we did this as a family. My wife is a great visionary person. She thinks about others. That's just what she does. And so she would bake cookies for our neighbors. And then we would give our, our, our children a basket of cookies or we'd put them in little plastic wraps and tie a ribbon around them, make them all pretty. She did that, I'm clueless, right? And they would take those cookies to our neighbors. And what we would do is not go. We would stay inside and kind of peep through the blind so we could make sure they were safe. And we would send them over there and they would go up to the door and they would knock. And then they would, they would introduce themselves, and we taught them when you introduce yourself, you look them in the eye, you reach up and you shake their hand, and you'd say, my name is Grace Ann Black. We're the black family that lives across the street. And we just want to come over here and tell you that we go to Mount Gilead Baptist Church. We're Christians, and we would love for you to join us at our church. And we bake these cookies for you just to let you know, welcome to our neighborhood, and we love you. They're engaging our neighbors. Why in the world would we have them go out and and engage our neighbors? Because our family was created to be gospel-centered. God created us to impact those around us. How about ministering to families that are hurting? Well, how in the world do you know that they're hurting? That means you had to go to their door and knock on their door previously. You had to get to know them. You had to get get outside of your comfortable world and get into their world. How about inviting them over for dinner? We love doing that. Guys, would you come over and and just have dinner with us? We'd like to get to know you. And then you ask questions. A great way to do that, Miss Patty, uh, Greg's wife, talks about the high-low-ha-ha conversations. Tell me about the high part of of your day or your life. Tell me what you really love to do. Tell me what you don't really enjoy doing. Tell me what the funniest part of, of your family is. What, what makes you guys laugh? Those questions will create hours of conversation. Now, it means that you may have to initiate the stories. You may have to tell some of your stories. And guys, I'll tell you a little secret about humans. They're one-uppers. You tell them a good story, they've got one they want to tell you that's even better. All right? How about volunteer at one of your local food banks or one of your local homeless shelters? How about go and sing at a nursing home? Grandparents, listen to me carefully. This is a wonderful thing for you to do with your grandchildren. Take them to a nursing home and let them sing. You want to see people light up? You take a child to a nursing home. The elderly will light up. The children will light up. It will be a blessing to both. Look for Teachable moments. There's always teachable moments. Go to Walmart. There'll be several teachable moments. Like what not to wear. How about, how about 
teaching your children to go cut the neighbor's grass. One of my children, their simple job is they would go on Wednesday night and they would get our neighbor's trash can and pull it down to the road. They're just wanting to serve others. How about the way you do holidays? Can I let you in a little secret of my family? We have raised our children. Now listen, this is my personal belief, so don't judge me, judge somebody else because of it. So, we, um, I've always taught my children that we, as a family, were going to choose not to celebrate Halloween. I took them back to the foundation of the holiday, felt like that it wasn't of the Lord, and we wanted to avoid all appearances of evil. And so what we would do as a family is we would go to our church's fall festival, right? Our Christian celebration of Halloween. So we'd go to our fall festival and we'd have a great time and we'd minister and then we would come home about 8, 30, 9 o'clock and then we would go inside of our home, turn all the lights off, go to the very back of the, of the house and hibernate because we didn't want to participate in this evil holiday called Halloween. And then I was talking to one of my pastor friends one day and he asked me how we did Halloween and I told him, he says, can I share with you how we do Halloween? I said, sure, it's not going to change my mind, but go ahead. He said, well, we decided that we were going to do Halloween a little bit different. So what we do is we go out on our front porch. We set up some rocking chairs, some chairs for our children. We set up an apple cider station. We set up a little candy bin there. And we play Christian music. And we invite people into, up to our porch. And he said, Shane, do you know why we do that? And I said, no, Keith, tell me why you do that. He said, we do that because we want to be gospel-centered. And we look at that as an opportunity. There's people everywhere coming to your house. You don't have to ask them. They'll show up. And so they come up to our house. Now, do we necessarily share the gospel that day? No, we don't. But we know that nine times out of ten, they're going to be from our neighborhood. And so we begin to create conversation and relationship. And we begin to model this thing called community. And we do this for the purpose of the gospel. I went home that day and I sat my children down and I sought their forgiveness. And I said, guys, now listen, the foundation of the holiday is still bad. But what if we began to look at this holiday for the purpose of the gospel? We began to reorient the way we do this. And invite people into this thing called community. So that just possibly we can impact their world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if every decision that you made was centered and filtered through the gospel. Purpose number two. Multiply a godly legacy. Multiply a godly legacy. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. See, a line of godly descendants, your children will carry a reflection of God's character to the next generation. Now listen to me, guys. This is scary. The millennial generation is the largest generation in history. And they are the greatest biblically illiterate generation ever. Now guys, here's the heaviness of that. That means that we've dropped the ball. We haven't done what we were supposed to do to pass on. And listen to me, guys. It takes one generation 
to walk away from God. In order for our children to do this, a godly life has got to be modeled for them. And listen to me, guys. I said this the other day. This is not the job of the church. It's not Pastor John's job. It's not Pastor David's job. It's not Pastor Jim's job to do this for us. It's our responsibility. How many of you in here have children? Most of the room. If you don't have children, maybe God has that in for your future. And if He does, you're in for a great adventure. Parents, would you agree? What an adventure. See, God's original plan called for the home to be this sort of greenhouse, a nurturing place where children grow up and they learn character and values and integrity. But too many couples today seem to be raising their children without a sense of mission, without a sense of direction. We're raising our children for the next 40 years. What if we began to raise our children for the next 40 million years? Think about it, guys. We're raising our children for this little vapor of life. And that's not what God intended. I want to raise my children so when they they spend the first 10 million years in eternity, it goes well. They're ready. Do you realize that's the only reason we're here on earth? It's to prepare us for where we're going. This is not your home. What's happening is we aren't imparting to our children the importance of leaving a spiritual legacy of changed lives. We're not evaluating our lives in light of the great commission of Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Where Christ commands us to preach the gospel to all nations. Now, grandparents, let me, how many of you have grandchildren? A good number of you, listen to me. This is of utmost importance. The greatest gospel-centered life I ever lived was when I went to visit my grandparents in Montgomery, Alabama. And I watched my grandmother live out the gospel. She loved people. My grandfather was a, his words, well, I'm not going to say that. He was a retired Baptist pastor. That's not what he called himself, but he was a retired Baptist pastor, okay? And I watched them live out life and enjoy it to the fullest. Grandparents, you have more impact on your grandbabies than you ever realize. I know they come to your house and you think, Lord, i got to fix what my children have done. I'll tell you a secret. When they come back, when they come back home from your house, your children think, Lord, i got to fix what my parents have done. That's the way it works. Okay? One of your assignments is to impart a sense of destiny, a spiritual mission to your children. It's your responsibility to make your home a place where your children learn what it means to love and obey God. Again, this is not the church's job. A home, parents or grandparents, should be a training center to equip your children to look at the needs of others around them and then look at the world through the eyes of Christ. If children don't embrace the spiritual mission as they grow up, they may live their entire lives without experiencing the privilege of God using them 
in a significant way. I, um, I think about my children and them growing up one day, 40 years from now, and I'm much older than I am now. And I'm hearing about or I'm watching the legacy that my children live. Now, Pastor John, is there part of me inside that would love to hear, love to watch my boy be the, one of the best linebackers that Alabama ever had? Yeah, part of me does. Would I love to know that one of my girls was one of the brightest physicians the world has ever known? Part of me does. But that pales in comparison to somebody coming to me one day and me hearing, your daughter led me to Jesus. And then being in an environment like this maybe one day and my son is getting honored and somebody says this, can, if, if Joshua led you to the Lord, could you stand up and the room stands up? You want a daddy to be proud. That would make me more proud than any other accomplishment they could ever dream of. Because that was a life that filled them full of joy and brought glory and honor to the king of kings. All other joy is elusive. It lasts but a moment. It's a vapor. Again, parents, we've got to model this for them. We've got to make sure that we're living gospel-centered. This means that every decision that we make as a family should be made in light of the gospel. This will require us to question, how will this decision make an impact on the kingdom of God? How will this activity have an impact on the kingdom of God? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that when you're getting ready to make a decision? Well, I wonder if we, could, if we should put our child in Little League. Does the fact of the gospel ever cross your mind? Well, I wonder, listen to me, I wonder, Pastor John, if we should start this next church program. Do you ever consider how will it impact the kingdom for the glory of God? Guys, we can get so busy in doing church activities. That's exactly what the church of Ephesus was all about. They were good at the programs. But they left their first love. They were busy doing church without the power of God. Larry Burkett interviewed a Chinese evangelist, and he had been persecuted, beaten, destroyed. He had been in prison several times, almost died. And he's over in America, and Larry Burkett's interviewing him. And he says, what, what would you say is the most amazing thing that you've noticed about the churches in America? This evangelist came to know the Lord in a communist country, did what was natural. He began to tell other people about the Lord that he knew. Suffered extreme persecution. And this, this was his answer. He says, the most amazing thing that I've noticed about churches in America is all of the things that they can do without the presence of God. Does this even cross our minds? We as believers have to be willing to get outside of our comfortable little world's population. One. Watch this video by Francis Chan. Francis Chan is one of the 
new and upcoming authors that lives this eternistic view of life. It's not about the here and now. It's about God's kingdom. Off the team, whatever. You know, just there's so much instability, so much that we don't understand, that, that we don't know. For me, growing up, it was, uh, a lot of you guys know, my mom died giving birth to me. And my dad remarried. Then my stepmom died in a car accident when I was nine. Then my dad got married again. Then my dad died of cancer when I was 12. And so I'm in junior high. My mom's dead. My stepmom's dead. My dad's dead. The only close relatives I had were my, my aunt and uncle, George and Sandra. And then when I was in high school, they got in a fight. And my uncle George shot and killed my aunt. And then stuck the gun to his own head. Killed himself. So I'm 16 years old, and this is life to me, going, man, what's next? Everything seems to be falling apart, and we get a little worried. We get a little scared. And this is what Christians do. You know, they try to serve God, but then things get a little rocky, and things get a little unstable. And so we go, okay, that was nuts. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to live like that. Let me, uh, let me hold on. And this is your routine. This is what so many people do. They go, you know what? I'm not going to try anything crazy. I'm just going to sit here, and uh, I'm just going to hold on, and uh, this is what you look like. You just go, uh, this is what people do. You know what, I'm just going to have my nice little family. We're just going to, um, you know, we're just going to keep to ourselves. We're going to live in a gated community. I'm going to homeschool my kids, make them wear helmets everywhere. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm not going to let them outside because sun has bad rays. I'm going to... Um, you know, just on and on and on, and you just live your life in the safety of, I don't want to do anything crazy for God, I just, I just want to, you know, go to church on Sundays and maybe give like 2%, um, and uh, maybe serve, help the nursery, because I feel guilty. And then you do this your whole life, and then you, you go, your greatest prayer is like, God, you know what, I would love to die in my sleep and not even feel it, and then just go up to heaven. And so you want to die like this. Just in your sleep, ooh, right in the middle of a dream, good dream, the dream you're going to heaven and you don't even feel it. And then suddenly you wake up, you stand before the judge and you go. <laughs> now, if, uh, could you imagine, could you imagine watching the Olympics, you know? And some girl does that, just gets up there, starts straddling the thing, and then steps off and goes. <laughs> what is the judge supposed to do on the card? You see, and to me, I go, man, that's the routine that so many Christians are headed for. That's the routine, the boring, I do nothing crazy because I don't want to fall. I, I, that's the routine that they're going to live and then one day it's going to be a shock because they're going to step off that balance beam and realize they're standing before the judge. They're standing before the judge and you think he's going to look at that routine and go, wow, well done. Well done. You lived the safest life possible. You didn't slip. You didn't fall. See, that's not the life that God's called us to. That's where the majority will head. But I don't want to go where the majority goes. I don't want to go 
where the majority goes. Gated community, homeschooled children, cul-de-sac, helmets, wherever they went. That was our life. That's what we did. God called us out of our comfortable little worlds, and He called us to live in a house on wheels on the parking lot of churches. And I don't know that that's what God would have you do, but I promise you He wants you to get out of your comfortable little world and make a difference for His kingdom. Mom, dad, husband, wife, grandfather, grandmother, where are you going? What are you laboring for? Are you laboring in vain? What is the legacy that you're leaving? See, Matthew chapter 28 says, go, not stay. Make disciples. Live generously. Reflect His glory. Purpose number three. Purpose number three is he wants us to complete each other and to experience this thing called companionship, this thing called community. Scripture very clearly outlines this third purpose of the home and the marriage, to mutually complete one another. That's why God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now listen, that word alone is not the same as lonely. Adam was spending every day with the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He was not lonely, but he was alone. There wasn't one of his kind. And why did he create another of his kind? Because he wanted man and woman to experience community. We're more effective when we're in community. And I love that, that word, helper suitable. When you break that word down in the Hebrew, it's actually the word helper is easer. It means a person who comes alongside, who, who helps to push along. But then the other word suitable is very interesting. It means someone willing to confront or get in the way. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 121.1 where it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from. See, God desired for us to experience this thing called community. When, when Paul was writing to the first century church in Corinth, he echoed the teachings of Genesis chapter 2. He said, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Guys, you need each other. Can you believe that she would marry a goofy looking guy like that? We need each other. My wife adds great value to me by God's design. I add great value to her by God's design. If you build your home according to God's blueprints, as the years go by, you will begin to really appreciate the genius of how God has custom made your mate for you. Your home is far more important than you ever imagined. We, we talked about that Sunday night, how we devalued the home. It affects the way that God is viewed by those around you. What do people say about Christians? What do they call them? Hypocrites, you're exactly right. That's the word that they use for hypocrite. 
And that's why it's essential for you and for me to surrender our families to Christ, the chief builder of our home. Look at this quote. The foundation of national morality must be laid in private families. How is it possible that children can can have any just sense of the sacred obligations of moral or religion, of morality or religion, if from their earliest infancy they learn their mothers live in habitual infidelity to their fathers and their fathers in constant infidelity to their mothers? That word infidelity is a little bit different back then when this was written as, as opposed to it is what it is now. You'd think this would come straight from the Wall Street Journal today, right? Nope, this came from John Adams, second president, 1778. And that word infidelity then meant a want of faith or belief. It's a disbelief of the inspiration of Scripture. How can we expect our Foundations to be solid if this is what's happening in our homes. Psalm 127.1 Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Real quickly, I'm going to go through some the last section pretty quickly. You probably won't have the time to take all the notes, but I want to hit these. Everything that God creates... Satan creates a distortion. And that's exactly what he's done. And unfortunately, what I'm about to tell you is what really describes our homes. And it would be so easy for us to look at this and say, you're exactly right, Shane. That's what describes the homes out there outside these walls. But the sad thing is behind our masked faces, this is what describes our homes. And Satan would have you to tell you that you're all alone. So keep it all to yourself. Don't tell anybody else the struggles that you're going through because they'll laugh at you, they'll judge you, they'll kick you out of the church. You know what? They're sinners. They might. But nowhere in the Bible does God cover up sin. We bought into this idea in churches that we should cover up sin because we don't want to disgrace the name of Christ. Listen to me. God exposes sin. You don't worry about the name of Christ. He can take care of his own name. We've got to be willing to live out this thing called community and say, listen, I want you to know, guys, my family's falling apart and I need your help. Satan's perversions. Number one, his number one goal is to steal, to kill, and destroy. John 10.10 tells us that very clearly. He's the author of lies, and when he speaks, he speaks out of his own character. He sneaks himself through the back door and through the windows of our home. And men, listen to me. It's our responsibility to make, the, make sure the doors and the windows are sealed tight. This is how he makes us ineffective. His number one perversion is to erase the image of God within us. He does this in our lives by sin. He does this in our marriages by divorce, and he does this in our homes by a worldly value system. If you don't think that you're living a worldly value system, will you take the next week and just evaluate all the things that you do? And then ask yourself, is this gospel-centered? Just take the next week to look at the movies that you watch and say, is this gospel-centered? Would Jesus sit next to me and watch this? 
Look at the conversations that you have, you're having with others and ask yourself this question. Is my conversation gospel-centered? Look at the discipline, the way you're disciplining your children or your grandchildren and ask yourself the question, is this discipline gospel-centered? He also wants to enslave us to creation. He does this by the lust or the desires of the flesh. This, these desires are the desires that spring up from our appetites and our passions, what I want to satisfy me. This is where immorality falls into play. Many of you are consumed with the lust of the flesh by the things that you watch on TV, the things you look at on the computer, the novels that you, that you watch. Listen to me, ladies. If you're watching, if you're reading these, listen to me carefully, these Christianized romance novels, don't do that to yourself. Can I tell you a secret? Those men don't exist. They're a figment of somebody's very vivid imagination. They don't exist. They're not real. They're airbrushed. They're fake. They're setting you up for failure because you're going to begin to desire somebody like that and they're not out there. He does this by the lust or the desires of our eyes, the desires that arouse and pilch our eyes. Again, like the things we watch, the things we read, the things we look at. What happens is they desensitize us to the holy. I talked about this the other night. If Satan can get us to laugh at it, he can get us to accept it. If you don't think that's what the sitcoms are about out there today, don't you dare buy into that lie. Yeah, they're funny, man. They'll make you laugh, but they're making you laugh at what's unacceptable so that soon you will accept it. It's the lie of the devil, and he's winning Lord forbid, Brother John, there's people in this church right now that before they came, weekends prior, they went and saw Fifty Shades of Grey. You'd never talk about it in church, but you went. You joined in with some of your lady friends and you went and watched the movie. Because we bought into the lie of the devil. The boastful pride of life. It's the vain glory of the world and its foolish display. What does God's word say regarding lust? 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I would encourage you just to write down the scripture reference. Don't try to write the scripture down. You won't have time. Galatians 5.16, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You want to flee the things of the flesh? Live by the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. You actually look at the verbiage it's, and you break it down. It's be ye being filled. It's the continual filling of the Spirit of God. Now, you're going to hear that preached two different ways. Somebody's going to preach it and they're going to say, we need to be continually filled because we leak. And you're right, we do. But what if we need a continual filling because when I got filled up, it overflowed into you. And so I needed more to overflow into you. And I needed more to overflow into you. That's why we need to be refilled. The natural process is we get so filled up that it overflows into other people, which means we need to be filled again so we can overflow into somebody else. What if that was the norm rather than because we leak? Third, he wants to eradicate a godly seed. This is failing to raise, a God, raise godly children and failing to have 
godly children. Let's start with number one, failing to raise godly children. Listen to me. Three, hold on just a second. Brother Don, how many children do you have? Two children. John, how many children do you have? Two. Four children. Would y'all do me a favor? Would y'all stand up just a second? Sorry, only because you'll, you'll let me. All right. These men have four children. Statistically, three out of these four children will walk away from the Lord when they go into college. Others are grown. Some are in college. Some are out of college. Here's the question. Which three will it be? That's a hard thing to look at. But statistically, that's what happens. Thank you guys for being vulnerable. I appreciate that. You see, guys, we've got to get out of this mindset. Now listen, I'm not heaping guilt on these two men at all. Sometimes we can do everything right and it end up not so right. I understand that. And God is sovereign. God's word is true. God's word never returns void. But we want to be able to say at the end of the day, I did everything possible under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. Did I make mistakes? Big ones. Listen, my oldest is 14. I've made some major ones. But because we're choosing to be gospel-centered, I have to go back and say, will you please forgive me? Daddy messed up. Daddy didn't represent the gospel well here. Will you forgive me? The most humbling moments of my life is seeking forgiveness from my children. The second reason that we fail to raise godly children is because we motivate our children with external rules. Meaning as long as you live in my house, you'll do this. Rather than with a life message. What if one day your children are backed up against the wall and they're, they're being told that they're going to have to denounce Christ? It's very likely. For my children, it's very likely that they'll come under the persecution that they're going to have to deny their faith for the sake of their life. What if my children, when they're up against the wall getting ready to lose their life and they're asked to denounce Christ... Their response is, I can't do that. I watched my parents live out this gospel. I know it's true. Nothing you tell me can make me deny that. I watched my mom and my dad give everything for the sake of the gospel. Failing to have children or to bear children. I'm not talking about infertility here, sorry. I'm not talking about infertility. Rather, I'm talking about this thing called one of the things like abortion, we bought into the idea that it's okay, that they have no value. Or just as bad not having children because they don't fit into your claustrophobic little world. Statistically, in America, we have two and a half children, two cars, and a picket fence. Now, I don't know where that half child come from, but statistically, that's right. Now, listen to me just a moment. Let's fast forward 40 years from now. You want to know one reason, even starting today, why we're no longer a Christian nation? You know how many children the average Muslim family has? 
6 to 8. Do you know why they do that? Their motive is to overtake the world. You tell me 40 years from now, will there be more Muslim children or Christian children with that statistic? Now, why do we make the decision to have two and a half children? I hear it every day. Because it's more convenient for me that way. This is what I hear every day. Are they all yours? It's what I hear in public. Or to my wife, you know, honey, you can say no. These well-meaning little old ladies, that's what they say. Why did y'all have so many? Well, we just thought it would be a good idea to let God open and close the womb. Because somewhere I read that children are a blessing of the Lord. And I just decided one day that I wasn't going to say, No, God, I don't want that blessing. See, guys, we bought into the... I'm not trying to change your mindset of children and how many you should have. Sometimes we can't have children. God closed my wife's womb. Would we have more? Yes, we would. But he closed her womb. But when we buy into the idea that it's okay for us to decide what's good and what's not for us, we're living in a claustrophobic little world. Population one. See, children don't line up with my career ideas. Children don't line up with how much money I want to be able to make. I've learned that my children are little mirror images of me. And so if they're little mirror images of me, the question I've got to ask myself is, what reflection are they portraying? What image are we reflecting? Whose image will you reflect? Our only hope is to cry out, God, help us to reflect your image personally as a spouse and as a parent. We'll give you some coffee conversation. I want to teach us in these days to live out this thing called community. And during our breaks... Obviously, you're going to have to get up and go potty. I said it again. You're going to have to get up and do that. I understand that. But, but don't do that as an excuse not to live out community. Can I tell you a secret? Though you sat at that table because you wanted to be close to the front where the spigot comes out of the spout, you know? Or though you sat in the back because you didn't want to be up close because you might get spit on. Though you think you made that decision for you, you didn't. God's sovereign. You're at the table that God wanted you to be at. I don't understand all of that. I can't even begin to fathom it. But God wants you to have the opportunity to live out this thing called community. So will you have this conversation at your table? What things in your life currently do not reflect God's image? Personally or as a spouse or as a parent or as a family or as a grandparent? And then what will change? What will change? We're going to take about a five or ten minute break. I want you to have some conversation around your table. And we'll start right back up at probably 10, 15. Okay?